Welcome to Grand Fraud, the global podcast for fraud and corruption investigators, covering the latest on tech trends, best practices, case studies, and legal analysis in the world of serious fraud investigations. Welcome. My name is Paul Milata. I'm a CFE and the host of this show. Our guest today is Sarah Chase. We reached her in the United States. Sarah studied history specializing in medieval Islam. From 1996 until 2002, she served as NPR's correspondent for the European Union, North Africa, France, and the Balkans, where she covered the war in Kosovo. After reporting on the fall of the Taliban in late 2001, she decided to stay in Afghanistan and contribute to the rebuilding of that country. She lived in Kandahar from 2002 till 2009 and learned Pashto, built homes, and helped to set up two co-ops. In 2010, she became a special advisor to the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen. Sarah Chase is the author of three books, including Thieves of State, Why Corruption Threatens Global Security, and the more recent one on corruption in America and what is at stake. Sarah Chase, welcome to the Grand Fraud Podcast. Paul, thank you for having me, and thank you for hosting this podcast. Incredibly important. Thank you. Sarah, is corruption the most important problem of our times? I think so. And this is why I say that. I think if you scratch the surface of almost any crisis the world is facing, from the war in Ukraine to mass migration out of Africa and Central America, to violent religious extremism, and most importantly, to the devastation of the planet of whom we're a part, corruption really lies at the root of every one of those crises in one way or another. So I don't think it's possible to address any of the issues that preoccupy us without getting at that root cause. Would you give some examples of what you encountered when you lived in Afghanistan? It's really interesting because I had no intention of focusing my efforts on corruption. When I decided to leave journalism and stay behind in Afghanistan, I wanted to do development work. I thought this was a remarkable opportunity to bring together two civilizations that had, I think, falsely seen each other as opponents. And, and it was Afghans who brought the corruption issue to me. So I learned Pashto, as you mentioned, quite quickly and didn't have any barbed wire or guards or anything like that. So I was basically the only American that my neighbors could get their hands on without an intermediary and without being frisked. This is the story that they brought me. And they could not understand why my government was turning a blind eye to the abusive corruption of their government, of the government of Afghanistan that we were supporting. After some years, it got to the point where they said, well, well, you must just want the corruption. This must be American policy. They could not understand the blind eye that was being turned to it. And so I spent a lot of my effort trying to get American and German and other Western officials to recognize that corruption was really at the heart of this conflict, because what I was finding was people were actually joining the Taliban because of their indignation at the corruption of 
their own government. And I could never get any traction for years on this issue. I kept being told, oh, Sarah, there's a war going on. We have to fight the Taliban. Corruption's later, or corruption is someone else's job, or corruption is, you know, part of Afghan culture, is what I kept being told. Let me say this. I think that in the Western consideration of corruption, if there is such a thing, at best, I think anti-corruption activists tend to quantify it. You know, we tend to try to make people realize how important it is by getting a monetary figure or talking about, you know, buildings that collapse or other physical quantifiable elements of the problem. What I think we overlook is the psychic injury done by corruption. So what I was facing was people who were indignant, who's, who's, who had been humiliated by the depredations of their government officials. So the problem for them wasn't so much, you know, the petty amounts of money they had been shaken down for. The problem for them was the humiliation of it. And by contrast, the Taliban they remembered, had not been corrupt. They had been all sorts of other bad things, but they had not been corrupt in this way. And what I found remarkable, as I did the work for that book that you mentioned, Thieves of State, I found that there is a link across history between abusive corruption by governing authorities and a turn by a segment of the population toward what you could call militant puritanical religion. Mm -hmm. There is a quote I would like to mention here from one of your recent articles. You are writing, in Corruption and the Decline of Rome in 1988, Ramsey McMullen devotes a chapter to the system called Power for Sale. Assessing its impact on the fortunes of Rome, McMullen wonders how it was possible for a rowdy, materially and technologically inferior coalition of untutored tribesmen so quickly and effortlessly to gain control of Germany, Gaul and Spain. The question mirrors the general astonishment when last summer, you write, the summer of 2021, gangs of shaggy-haired fighters mounted on motorcycles overran Afghanistan in a matter of days. So... You have written about this historic continuity of the uh, root causes of civilizational decline of states collapsing before Afghanistan fell to the Taliban again. You must have felt like uh, Cassandra. <laughs> Funny you should say so. I told my boss, Mike Mullen, in 2011, I'm not working on Afghanistan anymore we're going to lose. Because at that point, the United States had officially decided, and I was part of the sort of interagency process, not to address the corruption problem. And I knew that if we didn't, that the government that we had tried to establish and the efforts that we had genuinely tried to make for the emancipation and prosperity of, of the Afghan people were doomed. And, you know, we're all, of course, thinking about Ukraine at the moment. And, and there are a variety of ways that this particular issue of the looting of defense budgets also applies. Now, 
you know, we can go in all kinds of directions with that. But in particular, I think it's fair to say, and I think we can all remember the images of 2014, when Russia made its first incursions into Ukraine, the Ukrainian army, you know, which had until basically that year been under the rule of an incredibly corrupt Russian-affiliated autocrat, Viktor Yanukovych, that military was hollowed out just the same way that Ramsey McMullen talks about the Roman army and just the same way the Afghan National Army, in spite of the huge amount of money poured into it by the U.S. government, was hollowed out. And so you saw an army that, you know, lacked weaponry, lacked personnel, lacked training, lacked tents, and it just collapsed under you know, the not very significant offensive mounted by Russia and its proxies. And you see the difference today when you have a military in Ukraine that's actually supported by its government and that is proud of its own government. So that, again, I think is a really critical issue, just as we're focusing about military matters here. Afghans didn't need close air support and highly technological tanks and all this stuff that the United States was bringing, right? I sat in a, in a mud brick house and watched a nine-year-old girl strip a Kalashnikov and reload the sound bullets in, you know, under five minutes. Afghans know how to fight. The Taliban did not have close air support or fancy tanks, right? What Afghans needed was to be proud of their government. And I think the same is clearly true in Ukraine, where the military and the citizens, proud of their national identity and proud of their leadership, are impressing the world with their military prowess. And then, you know, another thing we can ask is why? Why did the United States make a conventional army in Afghanistan that was as top heavy as it was, that required maintenance from overseas, that required airplanes and, and this kind of technology when they were up against a very rudimentary insurgency? Why is that the type of military that the United States chose to build in Afghanistan? And I would submit that the answer has to do with corruption in the United States. I would submit that the answer has to do with the hold on U.S. contracting and procurement that is enjoyed by three or four major defense contractors that are all multi-recidivists, right? These are companies that are guilty of fraud, guilty of violation of U.S. law and regulation, and yet they keep getting the contracts. I'm going to quote you again because it's such an amazing paragraph you're, you're writing here. You're mentioning a 2016 unanimous U.S. Supreme Court decision. And you're quoting Chief Justice John Roberts, who is writing, our concern is not with tawdry tales of Ferraris, Rolexes, and ball gowns. And thus, he uh, overturned the corruption conviction of Bob McDonald, a former governor of the state of Virginia, who had accepted $200,000 worth of presents from a businessman seeking his help. What I liked was your statement later on that the real concern, all eight sitting justices agreed, isn't corruption, it's the fight to curb it. Because prosecutorial overreached against government officials and corporate executives 
That's what endangers the United States. We might have reached a tipping point, it seems, or we might have actually reached it a long time ago. Coming back to uh, the consequences of this behavior in Afghanistan, I do remember reading Thieves of State that you're, you've described a chronological development in the mood of the Afghan population and their position towards the Taliban. You wrote in 2002, many people who had been with the Taliban put their weapons down simply because they were tired. That was my understanding. And they did not want to continue the fight. However, sometimes after 2008, 2009, I think it was a presidential election, the mood changed and it changed sharply. Is that understanding correct? Just about. I would say that people put down their weapons not just because they were tired. I was in Kandahar, which had been the de facto capital of the Taliban. People hated them. They hated the rule. They were thrilled. I mean, I'll never forget the first, you know, there's a very important holiday at the end of the month of fasting, Ramadan. And this came in the winter shortly after the fall of the Taliban. And the celebration was so joyous. It was the first time in years they had been able to fly kites. It was the first time they were able to play games. They had horse races across the flat field, actually called Maidan, just like the Maidan in Ukraine, you know? And so this was very celebratory. Then I would say that the shift was not quite as abrupt as you make it sound. I would say I started to see it in around 2005. Mm -hmm as the frustration with the corruption that was being reported to me starting in 2002 really grew to a point where people just couldn't really couldn't understand it and were becoming quite indignant, couldn't find the rationale anymore that made sense for why the international community was allowing this to be done to them. In 2009, there was a presidential election that was so patently fraudulent so in your face rigged, almost, almost enough to make you think that it was a deliberate unspoken message being sent by President Karzai saying, you think this election business is, is real. You think your voices will really be heard. Watch this. And what happened was the United States put pressure on him because it was so egregious. But Instead of canceling the election for which the international community had paid, after all, and saying, look, we have to do this again and disqualifying him. I mean, imagine if somebody cheats in, you know, a sports competition, the person is ejected from the game. They don't just get the number of goals that they illegally got reduced from their score. You know what I mean? But that's what happened with Karzai. I mean, basically, they negotiated the size of his victory. So that makes it really hard for a population to say this democracy business is actually about equity, integrity, and the wisdom of the crowd, you know, the wisdom of ordinary people. Yeah. And that, you're right, was a very significant turn. And still, it took another decade before the country really fell to the Taliban. We've reached the end of part one of my interview with Sarah Chase. In part two, we will talk about the practical implications 
of the United States pulling out of anti-corruption work in Afghanistan in 2011 and the Romanian experiment of trying to legalize corruption in 2017. Thank you very much for listening to the Grand Fraud Podcast. Thanks for joining us this week on the Grand Fraud Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, nemexis.de, and subscribe to this show so you'll never miss an episode.